the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Friday Afternoon Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about anything going on in your life, church questions, whatever's on your heart, you need only to call us, 340-9585. That's area code 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. Uh, you can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Uh, you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Uh, we're coming into a really, really great time of year, so let me just give you a heads up on the stuff that's going on. Tonight here at Calvary Chapel, I'm going to be teaching um, uh, Revelation chapter 20. I'll do the first 10 verses tonight, and that's uh, where we begin our discussion on the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Uh, that is a fantastic uh, Bible study, and uh, I'm just thrilled to know what's going to be coming on. I'm actually going to talk about this uh, for one of the two sessions in the pastor's discipleship class tomorrow uh, in uh, 10.30 in the morning as well. Uh, but then next week, of course, Good Friday is next week, a week from today. This coming Sunday, I jumped the gun a little bit, this coming Sunday uh, will be our Palm Sunday message, the triumphal entry of Jesus. And then, of course, next Sunday, a week from this weekend, uh, we'll be having Easter services here, and uh, I know you'll all be excited about that. Do everybody a favor. Wherever you go to church uh, for your Easter services, uh, invite somebody who doesn't know Jesus to go with you. Family member, friend, co-worker, somebody invite them to go to church with you on Easter Sunday. Okay, let's get to questions that we have uh, sent in, and uh, while we wait your phone calls, this one is from Lynette from our mobile app. And she wants to know, is Cleopatra and her father and Mark Antony in Daniel chapter 11, verse 6? Um, Lynette, the answer to that is no. Let me read the verse, and then we'll, we'll I'll give you a little bit of details. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he... And his power will not last in those days. She will be handed over together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. Now, this is um, not not the Cleopatra and, and Anthony that you're thinking of. Um, th this is the, the, the Ptolemy dynasty uh, and their interaction with the Seleucids. Uh, and uh, their family dynasties are ruled. Now, chronologically, this is some 230-ish years 
ahead of Antony and Cleopatra, uh, the one that was made famous by Elizabeth Taylor in the movies here. Uh, so th- this, these are forerunners to them, Lynette, but not them at all. This was uh, an alliance between Ptolemy II and Antiochus II, and um, you know that was a result of of uh, the, the the custom in ancient times for a king to give his daughter in marriage as a sign of peace or to forge a treaty or an alliance with another nation. So we're talking about Ptolemy II and Antiochus. Now, obviously. Uh, sin is insane. There's a lot of problems with this. Uh, Ptolemy, of course, demanded that Antiochus uh, divorce his current wife, a woman named Laodice, um, if the murder was going to occur. So Antiochus uh, did that. He married Berenice. Uh, Laodice would be upset. Uh, she couldn't do anything to stop it. But just two years later, Ptolemy died, and Antiochus took back his former wife, um, she was quite unwilling to forgive and forget. She murdered both her husband and Berenice by poisoning, uh, as well as an infant son of the couple. And then from that point forward, Lynette, um, their their dynasty moved forward until um, some 230 years later. Um, then we would have the Antony and Cleopatra that we're familiar with. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Rufus says, uh, Pastor, on of all of your duties as a pastor, what is the most important? My guess is expositional preaching. Um, Rufus, you know, this, this is like asking me um, which book in the Bible I like the most or which one do I consider the most important? Um, the duties of a pastor are simple, to, to love and to feed. Jesus said to, to feed his sheep, to tend his sheep, and that's what we do. And the way we feed them is by teaching them the Word of God. So, yes, expositional preaching, preaching in context, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is um, uh, what I consider uh, one of the most important things that I do. But it is no more important than tending the sheep and by that Jesus meant Peter love them love them and and so I think if you, you can teach and there are wonderful teachers who have a problem loving the people that he's teaching and and that I think renders sort of neutral uh, their their the power of their teaching um, and so my 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 job is to my job I guess overarching description would be to to take care of the people to show them who Jesus is, to teach him in the word, but to love them. And you can't love them without teaching them. And if you teach them without loving them, you're just sort of scolding them. So this is really important. We remember that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 said, it doesn't matter how much you know, it doesn't matter how powerful your your communication skills are. If you don't love the people, you're just making a lot of noise. And I think, Rufus, that before I stand before the Lord and give account for my teaching, I think I'm going to stand before him and give account of my loving him uh, in his absence during this church dispensation. So that's what I would say, uh, Rufus. Um, uh, I can say this, that in twenty, nearly 27 years here, in May it'll be 27 years, um, every single good thing that's happened to our church here at Calvary Chapel, San Antonio, and there has been multitudes of them. Every single good thing that's happened has been a result of the, the, the faithful teaching of the Word of God. We teach the Word of God starting in the nursery. We teach it through all of our children's ministries. Um, we teach it to men and women separately in gender Bible studies. And we teach it in our classes. We teach it at school here. We teach it, obviously, from the pulpit. Just teaching the Word of God. And the power of God's Word being changed by the Holy Spirit through God's Word has been one of the things that um, you, you almost have to experience it to believe it. The, the, the natural mind can't really understand, well, just doing Bible studies. What does that do? When the Word of God is being faithfully taught, the power of God is always going to be evident and people's lives are going to change radically. Rufus, I was just uh, preparing for the show today and I got an email from somebody who was in the church uh, nine years ago 
or it was probably a little longer than that, but um, he was, he's, he's stayed in touch uh, over the years. And he says he's been uh, in, in a Calvary Chapel in Maryland. Uh, he is a, uh, a lifer in, uh, in the United States Army, um, high-ranking um, officer in the United States Army. And uh, he just emailed me a thing today to show me his installation ceremony last night at the church as a pastor at the church. He's getting out of the military uh, in October, and he will be a pastor of a church. And uh, that's just because when he got here all those years ago, uh, the Word of God gripped his heart and changed the direction of his life forever and ever. So, Rufus, that's the best I can do on that. Thank you for asking. Here is a question from Teddy. He, and this is spelled like it could be a she, can I have your opinion on two guys that I listen to on the internet, David Guzik and Mike Winger, please? Um, yes, I, they're both Calvary Chapel guys, so yeah, I can give you my opinion. on David Guzik, I count as a friend. Um, he is a, um, not only David, can you listen to him on the internet, David has um, a, a commentary on the entire Bible for free on the internet, Teddy, and, and it's under Enduring Word. Um, and uh, David is a serious theological student. Uh, he's also a good preacher. He's, he's, he, he was been a pastor for a long time. He stepped out of the pastorate now uh, to focus on writing. Uh, he's the author of several books uh, to focus on his uh, uh, online ministry. And uh, I, I can't recommend him highly enough. He is a good guy, uh, a good man, loves Jesus, and he is terribly gifted as a theologian. Uh, Mike Winger, I do not know personally, but I know he is a Calvary Chapel pastor uh, on the staff of a Calvary Chapel in Southern California. Uh, I I listen to uh, some of his stuff on the internet, uh, and uh, I admire him. I love his approach. Um, uh, very thoughtful. Um, I So, so I, I, Teddy, I just, I recommend them wholeheartedly endorse both of those men. So I hope that helps you. Here's a question from Richard. When Paul went to heaven in 2 Corinthians 12, he said the thorn in his flesh was given to him to keep him from being conceited. What was he conceited about? He seems very humble. Well, he says in 2 Corinthians 12, Richard, that uh, the the source of his conceit or even the temptation to be conceited uh, was the surpassingly great revelations. Now, uh, imagine you being in his position, and, and I don't know you, Richard, but, but I can only say it for me. If, if I had seen the things that Paul had seen, if God took me to heaven and showed me around, if God um, decided to, to, to reveal himself in that manner to me, I would, I'm sure, I'd have a problem with pride, and evidently that's what was happening with the Apostle Paul. Uh, It was just one of those reminders. Now, Paul, if you read his letters carefully, you get a tendency, um, you you find a tendency, rather, um, to, to, to see the Apostle Paul as being maybe, just maybe, a little short-tempered, maybe dealing with frustration. You know, people would come in and try to teach doctrines that are opposite of the doctrines that he taught the churches he established. And not only do you, do you get very possessive, I can tell you that as a pastor, you get very possessive of the people that you love. You don't want anybody messing with them, especially false teachers. And, and I think I can see a tendency in the Apostle Paul to sometimes just forget that he's representing Jesus. Um, he went to the Galatians and says, I wish they would go as, those for, as, as for those who were leading you astray. I wish they'd go all the way and emasculate themselves. They were promoting circumcision. And Paul is, is exaggerating by saying, I just wish they'd, they'd emasculate themselves. And, and Paul, we know, um, because he faced opposition every city he went to, uh, I think he had a difficult time with it. And I think when he would just start to think maybe a little too highly of himself, that thorn in the flesh would be permitted, the messenger of Satan permitted to buffet Paul, and it would be for Paul a reminder. One of the things, Richard, that I find fascinating about this experience 
is that Paul said uh, three times to the Lord, if there's any way, take take this away from me. And three times the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, uh, this thorn is a gift from me to you. And uh, I, I think Paul learned to be grateful for that thorn in the flesh as painfully, as physically painful as it was. I think that Paul learned to be very grateful for it because that was sort of like a check in the spirit, in his spirit, to say, wait a minute, you might be about to cross this line and you represent God, you don't want to cross the line. I think it's one of the reasons Paul could say that uh, uh, to, to the church at Philippi that some preach Christ uh, out of goodwill, truly wanting to advance the kingdom of God, but others preach Christ out of envy and jealousy, supposing that they can stir trouble for Paul. And then Paul said, and this to me is the most difficult line in all of the scriptures to live. He said, so whether ill will or goodwill, it doesn't matter to me as long as the gospel is being preached. So he didn't seem to care about the intent of their heart. I think that was a long process of humbling Richard that the apostle Paul had to go through. He would call this in his letter to the Philippians, sharing in the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. So I hope that helps, Richard. Thanks very much. Study the Apostle Paul. If you're really interested, uh, there is a book called uh, 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 by by F. F. Frank Frank. That's not it, but just sounding out. F. F. Bruce. Um, and it's called Paul, the heart of the apostle set free. And it is, I think, the outstanding book written on the life of the apostle Paul. I read it very early in my life as a Christian, and I absolutely love it. 340-9585. Let's go to Harold on line one from San Antonio. Harold, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Sure, Pastor Ron. Hi. I'm off today, and I'm next to my desk, so I'm not, yeah, I don't have to worry about driving or anything. And uh, you know, <laughs> I listen to your. <laughs> I, I, I do listen to the program just about every single day on the way home. I get out around four, four ten or so. And you know, one of the things that intrigues me sometimes is how you mention how people think that you should retire because of a certain age. And I'm sixty-seven and a half, <laughs> and even in my career, it's usually the younger people. Why don't you leave? Why don't you retire? And you know, yeah. I I just want to start over. You know, something like that. I'm just not going to quit what I'm doing as long as the yeah. Lord lets me. But but the reason I called also is the show, uh, the program yesterday about, you know, the house and keeping the house clean and people calling about what wives should do the day before. But some, Paula had said the very, very end, maybe the last three or four minutes, how how they had to, except for the summer times when her, her parents went to work or her mother went to work, she left them a list. And that just reminded me, I said, did my mother, I think she left us a list. There was four of us. This is back mid-60s, late, late 60s. And I called Mama up last night. Boy. And I said, Mama, did you leave us a list? She goes, you know, because she worked at a bakery for 36 years, you know, Colonial Bakery. She goes, somebody had the living room, somebody had the hallway, and somebody did the dishes. And we took turns on the dishes. I said, and she's going to be 67 here in about a week. And I said, she goes, except for you, Harold. She goes, now you got real crafty. When it came to the dishes, I found out you were hiding a lot of dishes under the sink. So when one of your brother's <laughs> sister's turns was next, they would have more dishes. So I'm telling you, you know, if if you listen to the program, you're going to find something out, something out about yourself. And I think that's 50 years ago, maybe, um, maybe more. And so Mama was just giving me another lecture. But I just wanted to share that with you and you know i wouldn't retire i mean i'm not retiring till the lord says i've had enough or i physically can't do something but anyway i just wanted to share that i i do enjoy the thursdays i don't call in on thursdays because i really like to hear what's going on stuff like that yeah thank but you anyway thank you harold it is really good to hear from you i'm i'm uh you're always in our hearts and prayers Thank you for that. Let me address what Harold talked about with the retirement thing, because, you know, I think naturally you expect people to want to retire. And I've said to our church here, and and we have a succession plan um, ready to go. So it's it's not like we're not prepared uh, should something happen or if the Lord would would call me to do something else. Um, But but, you know, the, the idea for me of retiring is just unthinkable. 
um, when I stop doing what I'm doing here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Uh, I'll be doing something else for the Lord, at least uh, as long as I'm healthy enough to do it. Uh, I, I just can't imagine um, having having nothing for the kingdom to do. So, uh, you know, I, I think trying to figure out the time uh, to retire uh, is is a difficult thing to wrestle with. Um, you know, I'm probably not the, 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 the Bible teacher, preacher that I was um, 15 years ago. Uh, I can't see anymore. Uh, I certainly can't read like I, 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 I used to read. So um, I, I'm, I'm sure that, that I've lost something. Um, on the other hand, um, I love the people that I'm teaching a lot more. I love Jesus a lot more. Um, the people that I'm teaching, Harold, know me. They know my heart. I have some equity, twenty, almost 27 years of equity uh, built up. We have a lot of people who have been here most of the years that we've been here. Uh, the number of people that we have in our church that have been here for more than 20 years is extraordinary. And, and, and then we still got lots of new people coming, so it's a really good mix. And, and they know me. I mean, they can finish my sentences now. But at the same time, they know my heart and I can say things to them that a new pastor coming in might not be able to say. So uh, I, I don't know what I'm going to do um, or, or when I'm going to do it. But, but uh, I've told Pastor Ken and all of the other leaders here at Calvary Chapel, and I've mentioned this to our church body at large as well, that uh, there's only one person who can tell me retire, and that's Jesus. And um, I, I trust that everybody here is as content doing what they are doing as I am doing what I'm doing because they too are doing what the Lord has called them to do. we got a wonderful group of people here with a great heart. And the one thing that I can tell you, Harold, and everybody else, that when it's time for me to leave Calvary Chapel, whether I leave living, breathing or not, um, the one thing that I know for sure is that Pastor Ken and, and the, the, the staff that we've um, developed over the years uh, will we'll ensure that our people will be just as loved without me as they were with me. So, Harold, thank you for that. And, you know, uh, we're in a time when there's a whole bunch of my friends, Calvary Chapel pastors, who are wrestling with the same question. How long should we hang on? And uh, I think the answer is, God, when we stop being effective, I think when that happens, then God will let us know. I want only what's best for our church body, for the people that I love so much. And if what's best is for me to take a step back, then that's exactly what I will do. Thank you for that. Here's a question from Anthony. This is probably be the last one that we do this half of the program. Anthony says, Pastor Ron, I'm fearful of surrendering to God's will completely because I think he will make me do something I hate. You know, Anthony, Paula and I used to laugh about this. Paula used to say, and I'm going back a lot of years, but she'd say, well, I know if I, if I just give everything to God, he's going to send me to China. And I don't know why we think that. Uh, and, and what Paula has learned over the years as she's gotten to know Jesus better she knows that's impossible. Whatever God calls you to do is what you're going to love to do. Anthony, I never wanted to come to Texas. I've been here 27 years. I never wanted to live in San Antonio. I didn't know anybody in San Antonio. I didn't know any, I, because I never been. I didn't know anybody. No connections at all. And yet God has set me in a family that is richer. Um, richer by far than anything I ever could have imagined. And so my counsel to you would be to get to know Jesus better. Ephesians 2.10 says that he's mapped out a path for you. He's preparing you to do the works that he's prepared for you to do. And when you're right in the middle of God's will like that, and I mean right in the middle of his will, there's no other place on earth that you would rather be. The thing that you have to wrestle with is, but I don't know what that is. Well, that's where you have to trust in God. That's what walking by faith is all about. We walk by faith and not by sight because without faith, it's impossible to please God. 
And so, Anthony, what you have to do is you have to say, okay, Lord, I'm kind of scared by nature, but I love you, and I'm going to do what you've called me to do no matter what. And you're going to find out two things. One, in those places of uncertainty, you're going to hold on to Jesus more tightly than, than you've ever held on to him before. The second thing you're going to find out is how silly it was. And I'm not being demeaning here at all, Anthony, but how silly it was to be concerned about this. You may think you hate something, but when Jesus is there, you will absolutely love it. And of that, I can assure you. And I do that based on the Word of God. I do that based on my experience walking with Jesus. The only thing you really should be afraid of is not surrendering completely to the will of God. That's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. Therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in light of everything that he's done for you, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. In other words, hold nothing back. And then you will find God's perfect, pleasing, acceptable will. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the week. We would love your phone calls, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our program our final program for the week here's a question from kevin it says pastor ron in matthew 12 jesus said we have to keep his commandments so why do we not keep the sabbath um, Kevin, the, the Sabbath wasn't given to us. I think this is really important. Two things. One, if you're studying the ministry of Jesus and you're not aware of the Jewishness of his ministry, it was entirely um, a mission to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And they were under the law. You and I were not under the law. The law was eliminated when Jesus established a new covenant in his blood. So Jesus never told us to keep the original Jewish Sabbath. So uh, he was telling Jews that they need to keep his commandments. If you love me, you will obey me. He said, this is the will of God to do to keep my commandments. Uh, but, but see, again, his ministry, he was a Jew. He had to fulfill the law. He did that. But those were never commandments for us. One of the things that we have to do in understanding, interpreting the Bible, is we have to understand what the original author intended to say. You need to understand the time, the setting, the audience, the context of the message. And Christians who who just, they read casually uh, through the Old Testament, keep my commandments forever. That's the, the, the charge to Jews. And it's always to them or to Israel or, or to the Jews, he said. The law was not given to us. We operate on a different covenant. It's the new covenant. Now, of the ten original commandments, the only one not repeated in the New Testament to us is the Sabbath commandment. So, yes, we're supposed to love people. Yes, we're supposed to live holy lives. Yes, we're supposed to to, to, to be obedient to the Lord. But, but only those things which we who are born-again believers are scheduled to keep. You remember that between Paul and Peter and then um, a little later between Paul and James and some of the others from the Jerusalem church, the the, the big argument, the, the, the source of friction between them was Jews kept trying to make Christians be Jewish. And Paul said, none of this is necessary. The letter to the Galatians, I referred to it in the first half of the program, the letter to the Galatians, Paul says, Every day is the same. You see, he repeats the same thing to the Colossians. Uh, we view all days alike. So there's no commandment, Kevin, uh, that applies to us at all. Jesus' ministry was Jewish. And upon his death, 
the old code that stood in opposition to us, Paul writes, was canceled. So that's what we've got to understand. So read more carefully. Don't be persuaded by arguments based on, well, well, the law says. What we do is worry about what the New Testament says. And when we lose sight of that, then we risk being dragged back into uh, a legalistic relationship with God. So I hope that makes sense to you. Uriah says, when planning a church, must the pastor be under the authority of a sending church? Uriah, um, uh, we, we've planted a lot of churches, so uh, ideally that would be the best case. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that just go out and plant a church. They feel called to do it, and they just start a work, and often you'll see those works struggle and die. Uh, and, and basically, you'll find out if it's a work of the Spirit or work of the flesh based on that. But ideally... Um, every sent-out pastor should be under the authority of a sending church because when you go out and you start a new church in a new area in particular, there's going to be difficulties and trials. You need somebody to give you wise counsel. You need somebody who will encourage you, somebody who might offer some support on occasion. Uh, but, But a pastor who is unwilling to be under the authority of the pastor who sent him would be, at least from my perspective, problematic. It's an interesting dynamic here, right? I, I think we've sent out, well, I don't know the exact number, but well over 30 churches. And some of them made it and some of them didn't. Um, and and most of the churches that didn't make it, they're the ones that didn't want to be under authority. Oh, no, I can do now what I want or what I think is right. And And that's not a good sign relative to where their heart is. Um, the ones that make it are those who stay in fellowship, those who who have support, those who can get help when they need it. Uh, we sent out a guy uh, to to start a church, and he's had some real severe heart problems. Uh, well, well, because we've been in contact with him uh, ever since we sent him, we're able to send people to fill in for him on the weekends um, that he couldn't serve. Uh, we can send over people to do worship. Uh, I mean, we want to help. And the pastor that goes out and doesn't really want the help of the people sending him, uh, that to me is an indication that there's a bit of a problem. Uh, I understand the, 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 the carnal desire to be on your own. Um, but no, no Christian, especially a pastor who's representing God, no, none of them should ever desire to be on their own. I don't think that's a good sign. So my, my answer would be yes, But I would also say there's a lot of people that don't. And ultimately, we find out whether the work was of God or the work was of the flesh uh, because they either make it or they don't. Good question. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Josh says, do you think there's a point where God ever gives up on us? Um, uh, I'm going to answer both ways, yes and no. Um, no, because God's love is infinite. But remember, God knows the end from the beginning. Uh, and I think God knows what we don't know in some instances. I, I think God knows there's a time when we cross a line. It's a line that's invisible to us. But because God knows everything, we cross a line where God knows that we're sort of irretrievable. Now, that's not God giving up on us, Josh. I think when we get to that line, that's us giving up on God. We have decided at that point that we want to be independent from God. We don't want him bugging us about things. And and eventually our hearts get so hard uh, that, that that from our perspective, say, well, God left me or God, God gave up on me. I don't think that's the case. You'll remember in the case of Pharaoh and Moses, Pharaoh hardened his heart seven times. He knew that Moses was telling him the truth. He knew that Moses, God, was God. God surrounded him with advisors, begging him to let them go. This is God who can stand against him. And and uh, they would persuade him briefly, and then he would get angry again and renege on his word. Um, that's not God giving up on Pharaoh. It's Pharaoh giving up on God. And seven times 
his heart was hardened by himself. And then finally, the next time, God hardened his heart. And that's just that God gave him over to his heart. So, Josh, uh, it's it's not in God's nature. A God who loves you so much that he sent his only son to die for you, it's not in his nature or character to give up on people. But he knows when we have given up on him. And when we cross a line, that invisible line, as I said earlier, um, then we don't know any longer. And usually, nor do we care what God thinks. So I hope that makes sense to you, Josh. It's sort of one of those questions with no one clear-cut answer. Matt says, this interesting question, says, Pastor Ron, how can we Christians better love gay people? Um, you know, Matt, I, I don't know that Christians, and, and, and you're being very general, I'm going to be very general. I don't think Christians have a problem loving gay people. I love them to death. I love murderers. I love thieves. But gay people, I want them in heaven. That's how much I love them. And that's why I tell them the truth. And I think, Matt, we have been uh, brainwashed by the world that we live in that loving somebody is accepting them and affirming them and even encouraging them in their sin. Yet the Bible teaches us completely different. The Bible teaches us that we're only loving people when we're telling the truth to them in love. And that means when we meet somebody who is gay, we've got to be able to say to them, God loves you. He died for your sins. He wants you in his heart. And when they ask, well, well, well but, but I'm gay. Will he love me as I'm gay? No, you've got to stop that. That's what repentance really is. And I, I think that's a hard thing because they get offended and we're accused of being harsh and judgmental and unloving. When the reality is we love them so much, we're telling them the truth. And in fact, we're risking a relationship with them on earth. We're risking being called bigots and 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 worse. Um, and I would say that's loving them. So, Matt, I wouldn't worry about what anybody else thinks. You know, the only one that you need to worry about is God. He knows what you think. He knows where your heart is. And if your heart is right with God and you tell somebody that... that homosexual activity is sin, you need to repent. Uh, They may accuse you of being a hater, but you know, and God knows that that's not true. And we need, we Christians, Matt, we've got to be thicker skin than we are. I've seen Christians change their viewpoint on the sinfulness of homosexuality simply because it feels so unloving to tell them it's wrong. To tell them they can't be married. We need to remember that Jesus said it'd be better never to have been born than to cause one of his little ones to stumble. And when we tell somebody what they're doing is okay, well then we're the ones who are causing them to stumble. We're supposed to be salt and light and we've got to tell people the truth. And I just think we've got to worry less about what people think. My grandma used to say over and over, Running sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. And she was trying to teach me a valuable lesson. Now she kind of lied because words hurt. And it hurts to be called unloving or bigoted. It hurts. Oh, you're a hater. It hurts. But as long as God knows my heart, and I know my heart, what does it matter if somebody else thinks I'm unloving? We simply cannot cave in to the pressure this world is going to put on us to accept and affirm behavior we know that is going to result in people spending eternity in hell. That's real love. Matt, for those Christians who don't want anything to do with gay people, I, I can add trans people here as well. You know, their behavior is disgusting to us. It would be disgusting if I did it. Our behavior is, their behavior is disgusting. Uh, But but we still have to remember that God loves them. He's poured out his love into our hearts, Romans 5, 5. And so God says, "Can, can you love them with that love? And loving isn't telling them it's okay. Loving isn't pretending that, well, you know, 
that's between them and the Lord, but but I'm the mom or I'm the dad, so I'm going to love them. We've got to tell them the truth in love. And if we refuse to do that, then we are the most unloving people, and we will be judged by God for being unloving. So, man, I hope that makes sense to you. Juan says, Why are there times in the Gospels when Jesus tells people not to tell what he did for them? One, there's a lot of those times, and I'm actually going to be teaching on this, um, the, sort of the the, the, the end of it, uh, this Sunday in the, in the triumphal entry of Jesus the, this weekend. Um, Jesus had an exact timetable. And when people who were healed or people who were the beneficiaries of miracles, demons cast out, whatever it was, um, you know, they would try to rabble-raise rabble the crowd to uh, make Jesus be king now. They wanted him to, to his kingdom. Set up your kingdom now, Jesus. And Jesus would say, always, my time has not yet come. And he was even more specific than that. He said, my hour has not yet come. And there was a time, Jesus, you'll remember, did everything according to the will of his Father in heaven. Never had an independent mission, an independent thought. He never spoke independently of his Father. Um, and, and Jesus knew that he was coming to a time, but he had to wait for that time. And that's why he endured so much. That's why uh, the, the opposition against him became so murderous. Jesus was waiting to do what the Jews wanted him to do at the beginning. That's to establish his kingdom, kick Rome out, and, and give sovereignty to the Jewish state again. However, they didn't want to change. They wanted God to change. It's not too different than a lot of us now. We want God to accept what we want to do. In fact, God says, no, 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 I'm in charge here. And so his time came on what we will celebrate on Palm Sunday, that was the time, the very first time, for Jesus to be proclaimed publicly out in the open as the Christ of Israel, the Messiah, that Israel had been praying for from the beginning. So that's really important, that timetable. When Jesus enters to Jerusalem on the, on the Triumphal Entry Sunday, and we call it Triumphal Entry Sunday, but it wasn't triumphant at all, uh, but when he enters in that day and he's proclaimed as the Christ, one day earlier, one day later, and he would have missed fulfilling prophecy, which means, of course, he wouldn't have been the Savior of the world. So he tells them, don't tell anybody. Now, you'll also know, and Jesus knew this, Juan, you'll also read that in almost every case, they didn't listen to Jesus, they did it anyway. And word spread, and so God's will was being done, but Jesus was simply saying, now's not the time. And even his own disciples would ask him repeatedly, uh, when are you going to set up your kingdom? Are these things going to happen soon or now? And Jesus would answer them the same way. It's not for you to know the day or the time or the hour. That's known only by my Father in heaven. So that's why he tells them one that is so uh, counterculture to us. You know, when we do something good uh, as a Christian, as a church, we want the whole world to know. And uh, what we have to do is is uh, just always, Lord, your your timing is perfect. Mine seldom is. So I'm going to go with your timing. That's what he did. And he did it as an example for us to be patient as well. Thank you. That's a good question. George says this, a former friend of mine is now in a gay relationship and still wants to be friends with me. What boundaries should be set up? Um, you know, George, you don't indicate whether this this former friend is a professing Christian or or once was a follower of the Lord or at least claimed to be. Um, but 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 I would I would make him an object of of evangelism. Um, I would tell him I would every opportunity, you know, I, I care about you. We have been friends for a long time, and um, um, I, but, but doing the things you do, I can't hang out with you. The things you talk about, I can't hang out with you. But here's what I want you to know. I love you so much. Every time that we're together, I'm going to be telling you about Jesus. And I don't think if you do that, George, you'll have to worry about setting up boundaries. I think your friend 
will set those boundaries up. I think he'll put you out of his life or he'll repent and get saved. So the idea that we shouldn't have friends or or acquaintances like this, now certainly we shouldn't have an intimate relationship, and I don't mean just physically intimate, but an intimate relationship with somebody who is in rebellion against God. Um, that we need to be able to speak into their lives. And if we can't do that, then we're not being much of a friend. But but boundaries are going to be established by the, the, the tone of the conversation, um, by the places, the things that you do. And um, I, as I said, I think most of the time when we set those boundaries, look, I'm going to be telling you about Jesus. I've, I've often used this line um, to tell people that, that I knew um, were offended by what I said. I would sort of take the, an offensive posture and say, you know, the thing is I care about you so much. I don't even want to imagine what heaven would be like without you. And because I love you that much, i got to tell you the truth. And at least that way they hear your heart. It's not just a, um, you got to stop doing this or you're going to go to hell kind of thing. Uh, when you talk about somebody who's going to hell, it ought to break your heart. And that's exactly, George, what I have done. And I'll be honest with you, a lot of those former friends don't want anything to do with me now. A lot of former Christians. You know, I've been a pastor for almost 27 years. And people that left the church and they become progressive or or some of them even in gay relationships. And they've they, they've just sort of bent their theology to, to believe that they're still going to go to heaven. And um, every time I get the opportunity to see them or talk to them or they will email me about something, I'll let them know. And most of the time they just run away and sometimes even say bad things. But who cares? I want them to get to heaven. And that's that's, I think... The best approach. Good question. I got five minutes, so we probably won't get any more calls today. Here's a question from Rita. She says, uh, I was listening to KTSA this morning. Now, let me, this is a question that's probably sent in a week ago. Rita says, I was listening to KTSA this morning, and Trey Ware said that pulpits should be speaking out against the gay and transgender agendas uh, again. And that if they're not, they're as guilty as the politicians who are doing nothing. Can I have your thoughts, please? Uh, Rita Treyware, and and uh, um, I've listened to him. I'm I'm not a big fan, or uh, you know, I don't listen much to secular radio just because I don't have the time. Um, but but Treyware's job is to talk about those things. That's what he's doing. My job is to talk about Jesus. And, you know, when you're talking about Jesus, especially if you're doing it the way I'm doing it, teaching the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse, you have plenty of opportunities to talk about holy living, to talk about godliness, to talk about becoming more and more like Christ. That's the sanctification process. And and my pulpit is going to declare the word of God. And I always get offended. Now, I know Trey Ware goes to Cornerstone Church, and he likes these fire and brimstone messages uh, where where uh, pastors pointing a finger at people and saying uh, they're going to hell and we've got to fight them and and uh, that's not what my Bible says. My Bible says they're going to hell and we got to love them. And the only way I can equip people at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio to love people that are hard to love is by teaching them the Word of God and equipping them for the work of ministry. When anybody in a secular job tells me what my job is. That is offensive. I don't call them and tell them what their job is. Uh, I don't think they should presume to know what my job is. And uh, Jesus is the one who gives me my marching orders. And anybody that wants to turn our pulpits into an arm of the Republican Party doesn't understand anything at all about the Scriptures. I think we've proven that through the last election cycle. And unfortunately, now that we're in going into another election cycle later this year, it's all going to come up. Christians, we need to remember that our kingdom is not of this world. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't vote. That doesn't mean we don't have opinions. I understand all of that. But the work of the church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. 
the work of the ministry that the saints have is to go deliver the message of life eternal in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead. And my job is to teach people how to live in a world that is in rebellion against God and do it in a way that honors God. Only the Word of God teaches people how to be renewed in their thinking, transformed by the Word of God. And I want to teach people not to to, to be lazy at work. I want to teach people uh, not to, to, to use foul language or lose their temper and get angry, not to drink, not to do that. I want to teach people how to do that, and you do that by focusing on the Word of God. And there's really no other mission. And Rita, um, uh, I'm sure Trey Ware is a, is a nice man. I, I, I believe he is a Christian. I know he says he is. But he is a secular radio host. I think he had to leave the job description of preachers and pastors to the preachers and pastors. We're the ones who are going to answer to God. So, Rita, I hope that makes sense to you. Um, we're inside one minute now, so that won't uh, give me any time to do anything else. Let me say this. Remember, tonight we're going to be here at Comfort Chapel of San Antonio. Um, we're going to be in the millennium. Um, it's kind of a confusing but glorious time. After the Great Tribulation, we're going to rule and reign with Jesus for 1,000 years. And we're going to start that tonight in um, Revelation chapter 20, the first 10 verses. Uh, it is Palm Sunday. So go to church this weekend and be thrilled by the patience and the love of Jesus Christ, what he endured in order to win your heart and mind. Hey, thanks for tuning in. It's been a good week on the show. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back on Monday. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.